producer. Speaker, the same call. to be in a group of my fellows. Um, so I'm going to stick to the format of what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. What it was like is um, I'm told that as for the first seven years of my life, I didn't eat. I don't believe it. <laughs> because I don't remember that part. But um, I do remember eating constantly. Food has been my friend since I can remember. I can remember sneaky food as a kid. I can remember stealing food. I can remember thinking that as long as I left three cookies in the pack, nobody would notice that I had eaten a full package of cookies, but there were three left. I do not know where I came up with the number three. All I can think of is that there were three kids in the family, so maybe, you know, everyone would get one, and you notice I would still get another one. Uh, but I, can not, I cannot think of a time when food was not my best friend except the times that the TV was my best friend, or spending was my best friend, or sex was my best friend, or internet surfing is my best friend. I'm a compulsive fill-in-the-blank. I've done it with all those things, and there are a few things I haven't done it with that, thankfully, I'm in program now. I know I don't need to try. But I experimented. I was a workaholic. Uh, I was eating and working uh, 18 to 20 hours a day and didn't think I'd done enough, and I didn't think I was good enough and I didn't think I was uh, performing enough. Got wonderful evaluations, wonderful reviews, but it wasn't enough because somebody else got the promotion, so I had to work harder, not smarter, or I had to be able to eat more, or I always had to, you know, outdo the other person even though I couldn't, and I didn't. So I never thought I was enough. I have an older brother who is homophobic, I'm gay, and I have a younger sister who's gay, and don't think that means anything other than the fact that None of us get along. So there's no combination, you know. It's like you think the two boys would get along. We fought. We shared a room for 15 years of my life. We fought every single day. When we finally got separate rooms, my mother was so thrilled. She said, oh, thank God. Not only will they have separate rooms, my brother was going to be downstairs in the house, and I was going to be upstairs. My father said, don't worry. They'll run up and down the stairs. And we did. And before we sold the house, my brother had to go patch the holes he had made from throwing things at me. Uh, my sister and I never got along because... Um, I didn't like her because once she came home, I was no longer the center of attention. I was no longer the baby. I wanted to be the center of attention. So didn't like her from day one. Uh, there have been periods in our life when we've gotten along, and today we live in peaceful coexistence, so to speak. She peacefully coexists in Oakland. I peacefully coexist in Los Angeles. And uh, my brother peacefully coexists in Boca Raton, Florida. So it works out well, you know. And thankfully for this program, I have a, a relationship with them. Today I have a relationship with them. Uh, before my brother had children 25 years ago, we hadn't talked in years. But when he had his first child, I said, I really want to be an uncle. I love kids. I want to be an uncle. And so I started being in communication with him so that I could have so I could be uh, an uncle to my, my nephew and then later on my niece. And I've told my brother that uh, because part of this program has told me, to be honest. And it really didn't hurt him because he knows who we are, you know. But 
because of that 25 years later now, we get along very well. can't say that I really like him, but we get along. We can be in the same room. Uh, we, cer- we share certain commonalities. You know, our mother, for one thing. Uh, and, I mean, I say that glibly because she lives with him now. And uh, when I was there in February visiting, which I do twice a year because I, I really enjoy my mother, um, she was diagnosed with dementia. And so I've learned in this program how, even though I may not like a situation, how to deal with it. And I didn't have to eat over it. And I didn't have to do anything else over it. I deal with it. And I'm on the phone a lot more with my brother and my sister, who hardly spoke to our mother for like five or six years. Now she's in more communication. And instead of saying, well, it's about time, she should have done it, it's like, all I say is God bless her and thank God that my brother doesn't have to carry the burden alone and that we can all pitch in and that we can be as a family the way we define family. Ozzy and Harry were never going to be. But... We can work out our differences, and we can be in the same room. And last year, for my mother's 90th birthday, we did a phenomenal party. I mean, we brought in family and friends from Seattle, from Kansas, from all over the country, and they came in and had a wonderful time. And, you know, the three of us worked together. And if you would have said that to me before I came into this program, I would have said, when pigs fly, well, then watch out, folks, because the ham's up there. (laughs) So um, I came into program 18 years ago. very dear friend of mine uh, had come into program longer ago than that and I saw her drop 150 pounds in this program and that didn't impress me what is better to piss me off she's my binge buddy this is someone I used to eat with we used to go and we used to curse and scream and eat and do all those wild and crazy things and besides losing the weight she got the serenity and she got the peace and she got the spirituality that we talk about in these rooms and she got all of that. And that was what I wanted. And oh yeah, yeah, the weight loss, that's pretty good too. And I noticed that in her. And so she kept talking to me and said, you know, this is, she said, Carl, I think this is something for you. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And I didn't do it and didn't do it. Well, lo and behold, um, she ended up moving out of state. She got transferred to Hawaii. At the same time, I got a job that had me go on business to Hawaii. So I still got to see her, which was great. And it was wonderful. My first meeting was on a military base in Honolulu, Hawaii. If you've never been to a meeting at a military base in Honolulu, Hawaii, or any place else, they're very different, but I got the message. When I look at that meeting now, I go, how did I ever get the message? And I got the message because my higher power was ready for me to hear it. And I was willing to listen. And that's something I learned. You know, I've literally learned how to shut my mouth in here and listen to what other people have to say. And it used to be, I thought, when someone spoke, I had to believe and do and uh, do what they said and believe what they, they did and blah, 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 and follow their direction. So that's why I never shut up, because I never wanted to hear what you had to say. Because you were never right. I was always right. I was general manager of the universe. I came in knowing it all. I knew how to run my life, except I forgot. I knew how to run my life. I knew how to run your life, except that I wasn't running life. I left out a letter. I left out the letter I. I was ruining life. I really didn't have a good life. I had no friends. People didn't want to be near me. They loved the fact that I worked so hard. So for that, they kept, they kept me nearby. But when it came to going out on social events, uh, they all left at five, the office at 5 or 6 o'clock and went out and had dinner and went to parties and did one thing or another. And I was not invited because nobody wanted me to be around. And so uh, I was ruining a life. I wasn't running a life. But 
so I saw this in, in my my dear friend Kate, and I saw that, and I saw uh, what she had, and I said I really wanted that. So I went to my first meeting in Honolulu, and then I came back to the mainland, and I said. I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. Well, of course, it still took me another three months to get to my first meeting. And, you know, my higher power knows who I am, and I'm grateful for that. Even, though, even when I didn't know I had a higher power as I do today, my higher power took care of me. I walked into the Gay and Lesbian Center when it used to be on Island Avenue, and I'm going to go, and this is going to be great, but I didn't know where I was going. I was walking in this building. I had no idea where to go, what to do. And as I walked in the door, someone came out of the restroom, and it was a friend of mine. She says, Carl, what are you doing here? I said, well, uh, I came for me. She said, oh, are you going to the Overeaters? Now I mean, so am I. Let's go and I'll take you. I didn't know she was in program. She didn't know I was in program. God made sure that I had a shepherd to guide me every step of the way. And at my first meeting, I heard the message. When I came here 18 years ago, I heard the message in the rooms. And I said, I can do this. This is good. This is a wonderful thing. And I got all enthused. It was uh, definitely beginner's delight. I loved it, and I was enthusiastic, and uh, I went to three meetings a week, and I did this, and I did that, and um, I got a sponsor who had everything I wanted. He had the boyfriend I wanted, the car that I wanted, the body that I wanted, the career that I wanted. He only had four more weeks of absence than I did. So this was definitely not the right sponsor, but, you know, I, at least I can say I had a sponsor. You know, I, I was going down the tools. I checked them off. I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. Didn't do the prayer and meditation, because I'm Jewish, I don't pray, I don't meditate, you know, what is this stuff, I don't do this thing. So, uh, I came to the program, I was here, and I got my first year of abstinence, and my sponsor, I mean, um, there's nothing worse than an abstaining crazy person. And I was an abstaining crazy, crazy person, because I was abstaining, I had followed a food plan, I had picked a food plan, I was abstaining, but I wasn't doing anything else. Yeah, I was going to meetings, but until I realized that this is a threefold disease, physical, emotional, and spiritual, until I worked all three, it's like sitting on a three-legged stool that just, you know, and not, and not having one of those legs. It ain't going to stand up. It's not going to stand up. So my first sponsor let me go, and then I got another sponsor, and uh, on the same day that my boss told me I was making and receiving too many personal phone calls, his boss told him, he was making and receiving too many personal phone calls, and we had to go separate ways. And then I had a wonderful sponsor. The guy was great. He knew me. He knew everything about me. And I saw him every morning when I looked in the mirror. Sponsored myself. That was crash and burn time. That, that really didn't work out. And it was during that period that I had uh, a major break in my absence, and I left the program which I would say was for about two or three months, and all of my friends have convinced me, and because I believe you guys when you tell me stuff, especially when more than one of you tell me, it was for two weeks. But for two weeks I didn't go to meetings, and I, I wouldn't make phone calls, and I was eating. And I was working in an environment that um, I knew that there were other members of O'Readers Anonymous that worked there, and they knew that I was in program. There were, there's one person over Readers Anonymous whose office I had to walk past to get to the candy machine, which I was at every morning at 10.15, like clockwork. And it was appropriate because we were in the same division for me to go into her office and close the door. Because we did do, go, I did go into her office many times and close the door and talk about business matters. I could have just easily gone in and talked about, oh wait, chose not to. There were four or five members of AA, and they had identified themselves, and we had identified ourselves, and 
we could have had a 12-step meeting any day of the week at lunch, and we never chose to. And I wouldn't go to meetings, and I wouldn't do it. And in those days, I was getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go to work, and I can remember that second week laying there every morning and saying, today's the day I'm going to do it. I know how to do this program thing. I know how to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And every day, by 10.15, I was at the candy machine again. And that went on for four or five days. And one day, I woke up and I said, again, today's the day I'm going to do it. I know how to do it. A voice said, no, you're not. Guys, I lived by myself at the time with two cats. And I don't think they spoke English. At least they didn't any other time but that. And I realized my higher power finally got through to me. And I had the presence of mind to say, okay, if not today, when? And it was August, and I said, September 1st. That's the day I'm going to do it. That was two weeks away. It was like August 15th, August 16th. I said, September 1st. So I said, okay, fine. But, you know, I knew how to do it. And, again, having a brain full of program and a soul full of nothing is nothing. It's like one plus zero does not equal anything. It's still e- In my book, it still equals zero. I'm not a mathematician, can you tell? <laughs> but I... I, I knew that I had to do something, so I got out of bed. And, you know, I started my morning thing, and then by the time I got to the kitchen, I said, okay, if I'm not going to do it today, when I'm, I said, it's going to be September 1st. I looked at the calendar. September 1st was a Sunday. I said, okay, I'll go to a meeting. I knew I had to go to a meeting. So September 1st was a Sunday. I said, what? I, you know, I never went to a meeting. I used to go to meetings Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. I don't know anything about Sunday meetings. Oh, I heard about this big meeting in Roxbury Park on Sunday. Make a long story short, I went to that meeting. I sat in the back of the room, which is now the front of the room, but it was the back of the room in those days. And I said, no one will know me there because nobody I know goes there. Yeah, right. You can't go anyplace in this town without knowing somebody. You know, once you've been to one meeting, you know someone at every other meeting. Bumped into friends of mine. The speaker was a, was a dynamic gentleman who I had heard before. And again, I wanted a bolt as soon as it was over. As soon as it was over, I wanted to get out. And then I, re- I remember hearing somewhere, you know, all these little birds kept chirping in my ear. All these little thoughts kept coming to my mind. And someone had told me one time, you know, when you're hurting, when you don't know what to do, if nothing else, connect with one other person in the room. And if you can't connect with anyone else, go thank the speaker. <laughs> didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it. I said, you know, i got to do this because I knew I was drowning. So I went up to the speaker and I thanked him. He goes, I remember you. I said, yeah, okay, right, sure, you remember me. He says, I led a meeting one time and you talked about how you were going to visit your parents' house and you were afraid because you were going back to where the disease began. Yep, that's mine. That was me. Well, uh, all I can say is that that was, this September will be, it's now been 16 and a half years and I asked him to be my sponsor and he has been ever since. Because I just became willing. I became willing. I can't do this program by myself. God knows I've tried. And it doesn't work for me. And the diet part of it doesn't work for me. I can't diet. I can food plan, but I can't diet. When I, uh, when I told, when he and I started working together, I said, well, okay, I'll call you tomorrow with my food. He said, you've been around for three years already, right? I said, yeah. He says, you don't need me to help with you. You know how to do food. We're going to work steps. <laughs> Steps. Hadn't worked the steps yet. Been around for three years. Had not opened a big book. Had not opened a 12 and 12 in three years. Gee, I wonder why I was having problems. I said, okay, he has what I want. And he really did. Okay, fine. So I started working the steps. Miracles happened. 
I found out why I had broken my abstinence. It finally became clear. I broke my abstinence in August. My father had died in June. And when my father died, I had abstained. I was hip-slipping cool. I went back to where the disease began, to a sister who wasn't talking to me at the time, to a brother who couldn't care less about me at the time. And I'm from a traditional Jewish home, so I was sequestered with these two people, along with our mother, for eight days, for seven days. Joy and fun. <laughs> Can't tell you the fun we had. And, of course, everybody's bringing all the foods that I binged on growing up. Everything I had ever binged on growing up, people were bringing into our home in droves. And there it was in front of me. I was Mr. Hipslick and cool. I didn't eat the sugar, and I ate my three moderate meals a day, and I kept away from this, and I kept away from that. And I did great. And I broke a few traditions. I made phone calls, because I knew how to make phone calls. I called a friend who wasn't in program, but who was a spiritual person, and I called this friend, and we talked every day, and I was doing fine, I was doing fine, I was doing fine. Yeah, until August. Because finally, the feelings caught up. Finally, it dawned on me, subconsciously, that there was still a hurt that I never addressed. There was still a thing inside of me that I had not addressed. Was it appropriate to, to address the laws in Florida during this period of mourning? I don't know. When it would, but it definitely was appropriate to handle sooner than when I got into the food. Because I thought I was hip-slicking cool and I could do it by myself and I didn't need help. So once I realized that that was what did it, that started a whole series of writings for me about dealing with my father, dealing with the death of my father, dealing with my relationship with my father. My father's been dead 15 and a half, 16, uh, June was 16 years now. Uh, I think I'm finally got a handle on it. It took me about 12, 13 years, and now I'm comfortable with it. But, you know, it's been a great process because it's been a learning process. Two years ago, the closest person in my life passed away. My soulmate died. Unexpectedly. Spoke to her on a Thursday. Got the phone call on Friday to tell me that she was in a she had an inoperable brain tumor, and that uh, since I was listed as next of kin, they needed my permission to pull the plug. Okay, I can deal with this. I think she's the person who brought me into program. Best friend in the world. She's my soulmate. And uh, she had moved to Missouri, and I said, "Well, I ain't coming to Missouri to visit you because it's cold in Missouri." So of course she died in January. So it's called the ultimate, I'll get you. <laughs> so she got me, and I went to Missouri in January. Let me tell you, I spent 10 days in Missouri in January. That was two months worth. <laughs> hey, I'm originally from New York City. I went to school in, in, in Nebraska. But you know what? I've lived in California for 25 years. Give me the sun in January. Don't give me this gray snow stuff. But you know, I didn't have to eat over it. And I prayed, and I meditated every day. Yeah. And there was even one point... On a Thursday night, I got into bed, and I laid there, and I sat bolt up, and I said, and I yelled, and I yelled at God. Not in anger, but in frustration. My, my anger, my, my yelling wasn't, why did you do this? My anger was, my frustration was, I can't do this anymore. I've done it, you know? I'm at my wit's end, you know? I had so much to deal with in such a short period of time, I can't do this I was admitting my, I was doing the first three steps. But I was even doing it at the top of my lungs. <laughs> and I just said, you know, God, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this. I can't deal with the five cats and the two dogs and, and, and I'm sorry, the five cats and the three dogs and the two ducks that I have to get rid of in the house and the property and the belongings and still be back at work on time <laughs> on Monday, on Monday morning. I can't do it. And I was screaming at the top of my lungs. 
And I felt much better. And I went to sleep. Next morning, someone came knocking on the door. We found a place for the dogs. A couple of hours later, I found a place for the cats. But one more time, I had to admit my powerlessness over fill in the blank, over situation, over person, place, thing, institution, whatever it is. I had to admit one more time that I couldn't do it. And that was fine. I didn't have to eat over it. And I came back to Los Angeles, and I talked about it, and I cried, and I bitched, and I moaned, and I wailed, and it went on and on. But I didn't have to eat over it or go to any of my other compulsive acts. Because I get lost watching television. But it's not eating. I can get lost, you know, internet surfing. But I'm doing research for a project I have to do. I'm doing something valuable. You know, any time that I'm not reconnecting with my higher power at least once an hour, I'm not conscious. I want to stay conscious. I get up at 4.30 in the morning so that I can have my 40 minutes to an hour to pray and meditate and communicate with my higher power. And on the days that I can't do that, let me tell you, getting up at 4.30 in the morning for someone, you know, I don't like getting up in the dark. And I've done it now for uh, almost four years, and I can tell you, it's never light at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> Summer, winter, spring, or fall, it's not light at 4.30 in the morning. And I don't like it. And my higher person's fine, you don't like it. You know, I don't have to do it. It's what I choose to do. I don't have to be at work till 8 o'clock. I'm only like a 40-minute drive away. But I need that morning time. That's what centers me. On the days I have to be at work early or I have other things to do and I have errands to run on the way, I go, okay, God, it's you, me, and the car. And the first thing I do when I get in the car is I shut the radio. And I make sure that I'm really centered. I know that I can pray because I can talk to God as much as I want in the car. I've learned not to meditate. Even at a red light, it's not a good idea to close my eyes. Not a good idea, but you know, and I did the same thing on the way here tonight. I just said, you know, it's been kind of a kind of a little bit of a hectic, crazy day. I was at a birthday party for a three-year-old this morning, and I came home, and one of my sponsees is going through some stuff, and we dealt with that. And I just said, you know, mm, I'm not quite there. So you know what? So I drove, and I shut the radio, and I called some people that I need to speak to that weren't that not, are not in program, but they're good friends. And I just said, how are you? What's going on? What's going on in your life? Because that centered me also. I don't, I've learned that I don't have to speak to only program people to get recharged, to get recentered. I can speak to people on the outside world, the ones who I know I can do it with. And if I choose someone and they're not in a good place and I'm not getting what I need that time, you know, I really got to go. I've learned how to get off the phone gracefully. I've learned how to say, you know, I really need to go right now. Or to let them know, you know, I really have to call someone else right now. Can I call you another time? And I will call them back when it's better for me. This program has given me a life that I never thought I'd have because I never thought I'd have a life. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, this morning that I've known for 50 years. I mean, I'm 58 years old, and Dorothy and I went to elementary school together, and we laugh about it. It's like, do you we've known each other for half a century? It's like, this, it just blows our minds. And she's not in a 12-step program, but I got so much peace and serenity and comfort from her because it's someone who knew my story. It's someone who knew my history. It's someone who asked about my family. And I realized I missed that. But that's what I have here in program. My sponsor knows my sponsor knows more about me than my family does. And then again, most of you know more about me than my family does. <laughs> because I'm more comfortable with you than my family. But I've made that choice to make you my family. To be willing to be open. To be willing to be vulnerable. To be willing to stand up here and say that I hurt. To be willing to say I don't know. Three hardest words in the English language for me, I don't know. 
I mean, I came in, I was general manager of the universe. I knew everything. And today I know nothing. Well, I take that back. I know that I have to keep in touch with my higher power. I know that I have to keep going to meetings. I know that even when I'm out of town and I don't want to go to meetings, if I don't go to meetings, it just means up the phone calls instead of just making and receiving phone calls from sponsor and sponsees, make an outreach call. God bless cell phones. You know, people say, what did we do without, with, without, what did we do in life before we had cell phones? I know what I did. I had long-distance phone bills. I'd go to Florida to visit my family, and I would just pick up the phone and call and tell my parents, I'll leave you money. Or if I was at somebody else's house, I'd make the phone calls because I can't not be in touch with the program. I can't not be in touch with you guys. I've seen what that's like, and I don't like it. My food gets sloppy. And let me tell you, for me, once I say, oh, this meal was sloppy, and that meal was sloppy, and then that one, uh-uh, 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 not good. I'm not going to use the P word, because I've not found it in the big book yet. I've not found perfection in the big book yet. So I'm not talking about perfect. I'm talking about my own personal choices when my meals get a little funky. If there are foods that my doctors say I shouldn't eat, but I haven't added them to my abstinence, that's a little slippy slidey for me. And if I see that I'm craving them or eating them too often, it just means up the phone calls. Start writing down my food again. Start committing my food. Start being responsible. Being committable. Being, uh, I have to let someone know what's going on with my food because I, you know, I want to eat Manhattan. You know, people talk about going back to Manhattan, you know, that you can walk in the... Well, you know, guess what? I live in West Hollywood. I can do the same thing in West Hollywood. There are lots of delis up and down West Santa Monica Boulevard. I can walk to Melrose. I'm two blocks north of Melrose. I I can eat very easily. But if I don't want to do it, I need to do the work. Now, when I was growing up, we were not allowed to use four-letter words. (laughs) Because in those days, they meant the F word and shit and things like that. Well, guess what, folks? Work's a four-letter word. And I don't like work. You know, I really don't. I cannot tell you, it's probably three or four times a year I call my sponsor and say, you know, I know I have to do the footwork, but my feet are tired. He said, fine. And what step are you writing on today? You know, it's like, I have to go through it. I have to say it. I have to get it out. And I have to continue doing it. Because if I stop, I see where, where I'm going to get. And I don't want to go there again. Been there, done that. And I've seen other people do it. And you know, I don't know if I would have the courage if I walked out to come back again. And I don't, I don't want to find out. I, I you know, I, I know that this in my life is something that has worked for me. You know, I have a relationship. You know, I can go to my mother, who, thank God, me she remembers, but I see she doesn't remember a lot of other people. And I can be with her, and I can talk to her, and I can hold her hand, and, and, and I can listen, and I can be tolerant. And a friend of mine in Las Vegas, his mother passed away, and I could be there for her. And I always used to be of service because I would do for you because you're going to do for me. And that was was what I thought. I didn't show on the outside, but that was what was going on up here. Today I do for you because that's what I enjoy doing. And that's what I, I get a joy in here from doing. I do service because I want to do it. And sometimes I say no to it. I say, you know, I can't do it. Sorry. And I realized, who said that? I've never said no to being there for somebody. I said, I'm strong. I'm always there. I'm always showing up for people. And you know what? Sometimes I have to take care of me. Sometimes I have to take care of me first. Now, how do I take care of me? 
So yeah, sometimes I'll take service, and sometimes I won't. And the service could be at a meeting, and the service could be on the intergroup board. And sometimes I'll say, you know, I just can't do that right now. It doesn't work in my life. And my friend in Las Vegas said, uh, can you come help me do blah, 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 you know, help me clean out her room? And I said, I'd be honored to, because her mother was also a friend of mine. I said, I'd be honored to. And I goes, yeah, I will be honored. That's an honor. And I'm going to go and do it, but I'm going also on my own terms. I'm going on a flight that works for me. I'm coming back on a flight that works for me. And I never thought I could set boundaries. It's whatever you wanted, I would do. And now I've learned how to set boundaries and accept other people's boundaries. You know, when people say, no, I can't do that, or no, I can't take your phone call, or no, I can't. It's like, what do you mean? You're saying no to me? And I, and I go, okay, fine. But I've learned how to be a better brother, a better son, a better co-worker. I've learned how to deal with difficulties in my life that, unfortunately, I've had a face, that I wish I hadn't had a face, but I know how to do it. And I can do it abstinently. And the reason I push the abstinence is for me is that if I go back into the food, I'm going to go back into all the other things. The food, if I go back into the food, it just means one more way I'm numbing out. I'm not being in the moment. A good friend of mine is going through a lot. And whenever she talks about when blah, blah, blah happens, I said, when is that? Oh, three years from now or five years from now. I say, hello? How about, where are we today? Where are we Saturday night at 6.14? That's what's important to me. Where am I right now? Yeah, I make plans for the future, but I'm not going to make these grandiose things about I have to do this, I have to do that. You know, long-range plans? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to live only in the moment. I have to make some plans. But I also have to realize that where I need to be emotionally and spiritually is right here, right now. Being the best me I can be at any given moment. And making my amends as I need to. I said something to my niece this morning that as I said it, I made my amends. I said, whoops, that was wrong. I said, I should, I said, forget that, I'm sorry, that was really wrong. And it wasn't about her. It had nothing to do with her. And she was looking, I said, please, you know, I should, that slipped out. And you know what? It happens. So it slipped out. And so I, and I will call her tomorrow to, again, thank her for a wonderful three-year-old birthday party, which, three-year-olds, yes. Uh, not being a parent, you know, and you go to a room full of three-year-olds, it's a challenge. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I could do it. Because, and then it's another thing. I could do something like that. I could be there for my family and do the best I can. I, and I really did have a good time. I mean, it was a lot of fun, but it was very tiring chasing those kids. I loved it. But tomorrow I'll call her to thank her. And as I'm talking to her, I will turn it over to my higher power and say, do I need to make a further amends? Am I done? It's not what she heard. It's what I said. Did I speak from my soul? You know, I don't know about you guys, but I've heard it from enough other people, so I guess it's true. We all have it. There's a voice that goes on here in my head. And it goes on and on and on. And I kept looking for the off switch. I said, there's got to be a way to shut that off. So, of course, I tried it with food, and I tried it with alcohol, and I tried it with sex, and I tried it with all those other things. And they would work for a short period of time. They would work for a short period of time. But it always came back louder and stronger. So I said, there's got to be a way. And I really had to stop looking. And then I came into program, and believe it or not, I found it. I did find a way, but it doesn't shut it off. See, this is the trick. I was looking for the on-off switch, and I was looking for a little toggle that went up and down. If I'd been looking for the right thing, maybe I would have found it sooner. It's a rheostat. It's on a little turny thing. And I found out what that turny thing looks like. 
It's about this big, and it's blue, and on the front it says Alcoholics Anonymous. Some of us call it the big book. And I found that if I read that book, and I listen to the lessons that are taught in there, and the guidelines that are given there, it's going to lower the volume. It's not going to turn it off. It's always going to be there. But what I also found is that the lower the voice in my head gets, the stronger my voice in my soul gets. And the easier it is for me to say, no, thank you, or this is what I need, or the other three hardest words, I need help. Me, say, I need help for something. And I can say that today. I can go to my sponsor, I can go to my boss and say, I screwed up a project. This is what I did before she finds out. I can go and be honest about it. And someone said, well, aren't you worried that you're going to get fired? I said, no. So I'm worried that my I'm worried that my integrity is out of sort. I go and I say, this is what I did. This is what happened. I think we need to fix it. Got to tell you, nine times out of ten, it ain't such a big deal. I make a bigger deal out of it than she does. She says, oh, that's easy to fix. You just do this and this and this and we fix this and we do that. And it works out wonderfully. But in the past, I would have beaten over it. I would have done something better. I would have shoved it under, you know, put it at the bottom of the pile of work I have to do. No one will see it. No one will find out. I find out if I'm not clean about it from the get-go, if I'm not clean about my actions from the get-go, just like I wasn't clean about my feelings with my father's death, I'm going to act out in some way over it. I'm going to drive like a maniac on the road. I'm going to eat, drink, watch TV. I'm going to do something wrong. You know, one of the things I do when I'm driving is if I'm really driving erratically and I'm trying to get there five minutes faster by zigzagging, and I go, whoa, what's going on? There's something else going on. It's nothing to do about being on time. Everybody's late in L.A. We're all late. There's traffic. You know, I was driving this morning to this party, and I got, I mean, there was a major accident. Who ever heard of there being an accident on Havenhurst on the 101 at 10 o'clock on a, on a Saturday morning? But guess what? It was. And you know what? I got there when I'd be there. I did the best I could to leave at an appropriate time, and I turned over to my higher power. I drive to Vegas a lot. You know, I see people zipping past me. Years ago, I used to work out in Calabasas, and I lived in West Hollywood, and I made an agreement with my higher power. I said, I'll tell you what, I won't go nine mile, more than nine miles over the posted limit, and you keep me out of accidents, and the highway patrol won't give me a ticket. Well, that worked. And, you know, I drive to Vegas all the time. My friends say, oh, I can do that in three and a half hours. I said, yeah, you can. I can't. Because no matter what that speed limit says, I don't do more than nine miles above the posted limit. And let me tell you, when I'm doing 79 miles an hour, because it says 70, and I'm doing 70, they're zipping past me. And I mean zipping. And you know what I say? God bless them. God bless them. Because that's a lot easier for me to say, God bless them. Why is it me? And I wish I could do it. I don't want to do it. Because my contract with my higher power and the California and the Nevada Highway Patrol, nine miles faster than the speed limit, and, I, and we, we all get there safe and sound. You know, and if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. But today I can look myself and anybody else in the eye. And an incident to work on Thursday that somebody just blew way out of proportion, and all I did was tell my truth. All I did was tell my truth. When the security people came to investigate me, what I was doing, they said, is there someplace we can talk? I said, we can talk right here. I have nothing to hide from anybody. They wanted to go to a private office. They said, I'm willing to talk right here in the middle of the floor. I have nothing to hide. And I said, wow. Because 
when I was growing up, my parents told me uh, as an adult, they said, you know, when you were a kid, we could always tell when you were lying. I said, really? Because I used to lie all the time. And, uh, it was terrible. I said, you could always tell when I was lying? They said, every single time when you were lying. I said, how could you tell? I thought I had a twitch. I thought my eyes twitched, my nose twitched, my ears twitched. I don't know. They said, your lips were moving. <laughs> and I said, and you were going to tell me that when? <laughs> they waited until I was an adult, until I was in program. I didn't come into program until I was 40 years old. So they told me, like, when I was 42 or 43 years old, they tell me this. And, like, why wasn't I told this when I was a child? Because they were doing the best that they could by being the parents that they were. They were good parents. When I first came in, I didn't think so. When I first came in, I, uh, you know, he should have done this and she should have done that. And you know what? He should have and she should have. They should have. But they didn't. And so today I'm grateful for the life that I have today. Today I'm grateful that I can abstain one day at a time. Because let me tell you something. I have 15 years of continuous absence, one meal at a time. I take them one at a time. I take nothing for granted. I don't take for granted that there's going to be food in my cabin unless I go out and buy it. And I don't take for granted that I'm going to have absence tomorrow or today unless I work for it. Thanks for letting me share.